think that highlights for me again what it means to be a church in a pluralistic society. We need to be wise, take the best of biblical knowledge, but integrate it with other fields. We need to have the virtue, the character of Christ to love our neighbors, not just to use them towards the end of finishing the Great Commission or getting the task done. That's why we make disciples to be agents of peace and reconciliation and shalom in society. And if the church was known for that and was consistent, then I think we would see a rise in trust. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and today we are heading back into our conversation in which we unpack the significant shifts impacting global mission. In each episode, you'll be hearing from Dr. Matthew Nieman, the director of the Lausanne Movement's State of the Great Commission Report, and a guest who will help us unpack the topic at hand. In today's podcast, we will be exploring the context shifts in trust. Now, the validity of the gospel message is independent of individuals and institutions. However, when those who share the good news are not trusted, the gospel is questioned. Globally, there is a perceived rise in distrust that is dynamically shaping cultures. As the world asks, what is the foundation of trust? To help us explore the topic of trust in a meaningful way, we'll be joined by Dr. David Benson from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. But first, let us begin with some framing insights from Dr. Matthew Newman's research from the State of the Great Commission Report. Dr. Matthew Newman, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, good morning. It is always good to have you on the podcast, Matt. You are a long time running guest on the podcast, and we're going to have you for a few more episodes as well as we unpack the State of the Great Commission Report. Today, the question and focus is shifts in trust. And the question is, what is the foundation of trust? Now, I'm curious to know what drew you to focus in on the concept of trust in your research for the State of the Great Commission Report. I can understand researching the demographic shifts in the world. I can understand the shifts in technology and unpacking that. But trust is a really interesting question and shift to focus in on. So could you unpack for us why you and your team felt it necessary to explore trust as an important topic for the State of the Great Commission? You know, in previous episodes, we've discussed a lot, as you mentioned, about demographic changes or these very tangible, measurable changes. However, there are times in where there are key philosophical shifts that occur and that really shape our world just as much as demographic changes. And the changing nature of trust in our societies is one of those shifts. You know, it's been really interesting to see how many secular and faith-based organizations are noting this shift in trust as a key issue for our globe. As you can imagine, if trust declines, there's a lot of things that change with it, from relationships to the role of institutions to the role of trust in God. So as we've rolled out the report, it's been interesting to see how many people have said, yes, I see that. There is a shift in trust. I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. This is becoming actually a really poignant point of the report for many people. So as you say, we're going to explore trust in religious institutions and institutions itself, and even explore what the next generation are experiencing in terms of their experience of trust. All very interesting. We can dive into that. But I'm curious to hear from you. We have a broad audience from all over the world listening to this podcast, watching this podcast. How does trust vary in different regions and in different cultures as we look at the globe? You know, in any of these activities of thinking about global trends, there's a danger in saying that something is truly global since there are so many exceptions at the regional and country level. So I really appreciate this question. 
But in general, there is a declining level of trust in our world. We can start there. In a well-established survey, for example, on this topic, 77% of global respondents said that there is more conflict in, between people who don't have the same values in their location. Additionally, 59% of global respondents say that their tendency is to distrust. And wow. 64% believe that people in their country lack the ability to have civic and constructive debates. So even if we look at the global level, there is this baseline of questioning about trust. Now, at the regional level, you do see a bit of variation. Generally speaking, there's a much higher level of trust in Asian countries. You look at countries like China, UAE, Indonesia, India, Saudi Arabia, they have a much higher level of trust, particularly compared with the lower level of trust that's happening in Europe, America, Latin America, and Russia. There, there's kind of global regional differences there. You know, as you're speaking, Matt, I was just thinking about my own country, which is also in the report, rated as one of the lowest countries in terms of trusting anyone. So I always find it curious to talk about trust because I just have a natural disposition not to trust, which is a regional thing, clearly. But one of the major sections in your report focused in on institutional trust. Now, I would love for you just to unpack what is meant by institutional trust and which traditional institutions are experiencing the greatest shifts in terms of trusting by people and what factors are influencing these changes? So when we talk about institutional trust, we're talking about how people hold to societal structures. This could be anything from governments to businesses to social groups to media, the, the major pillars that run societies and culture. So generally speaking, when we consider trust in traditional institutions like this, we see two primary groups that have formed. First, there's the group that people trust less and have less trust in. And this group considers and has government institutions and the traditional media or journalism. These globally have become far less trusted. On the other side of that hallway, let's say, there remains a higher level of trust comparatively in institutions like the neighborhood, or we see the highest amount of trust actually in science. So in recent years, there's been this steady decline and of these two groups and, and moving apart of government and media and science and neighborhoods. Another interesting thing that kind of is an interplay between religious institutional trust and institutions itself is what you define in the report as trusting in oneself. Could you share some of the findings? I thought it was so fascinating, the kind of data that was being pulled out in terms of people's trust in themselves. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite points too, Jason. So thanks for highlighting this. This is actually one of the more interesting phenomena, maybe one of those base phenomena that's driving the rest of the picture. Here's an interesting way to do it. If you track the number of publications globally in English on different topics, you can get a general pulse of where priorities are. So if you compare the number of publications focused on community versus self, historically, community has always outnumbered publications on self by a large number. However, Jason, about 15 years ago, for the first time in recordable history, this flipped. For the first time, first time we've measured this, we are now publishing more on the self than on the community. Now this begins to correlate with other data points in the report as well. In a trusted global survey, I was really surprised to see that there's a, such a large percentage of people who place their trust in themselves. This actually was shocking to me. When the respondents were asked if they agree with this statement, it is up to everyone to work out their own set of principles and guide their own decisions. Globally, 83% of all respondents agreed with that statement. 83 said, it is up to me to work out my own set of principles and guide my own decisions. 
that's a huge percentage in any global survey. One of the highest percentages I've seen in any global survey on any question, 83%. So that's a vast majority of, this, of people in this global survey trust themselves more than they trust institutions or communities. Now there's a lot more data points here, but you can see when you begin to step back and look and correlate different data points, we've had this major shift from community to self, which is really challenging trust structures. And that has major implications on the local and the global church because we are a community and we also have our own sets of values that, that we hope, you know, we all share and agree on and um, encourage within our children. So I'd be interested, how does trust in religious institutions, how has it changed over the years and what implications does this have for Christian mission? As I mentioned before, there's kind of two different sides of trust in institutions right now. You have the government and the media that are not as trusted. You have scientists and neighborhoods that are a little bit more trusted. So as we looked at the report, it'd be, it was interested in seeing where does religious institutions fall mm. within that spectrum. So there's an interesting study that compared how much people trusted scientists versus religious leaders. So in this study, participants were shown two videos one with a scientist and one with a religious leader who both said the same nonsense statement. Like it wasn't even a message. Overwhelmingly, all across the globe, people trusted scientists over the religious leaders. So we're seeing alongside this general decline in institutions, there's a really concerning decline in trust of religious institutions. The intensity of distrust really varies geographically as we've seen regionally, but it's particularly prominent globally, since we're talking about global trends amongst global youth. So when a large group of global youth were asked if they trusted certain institutions, religious institutions were distrusted immensely at the same general levels as government and media. So we're seeing a clear picture that religious institutions are being lumped into the untrusted side. And this means that religious institutions are on arguably the wrong side of this trust line, unfortunately. I love how you connected that to the youth and how the trust in the youth, that the youth are trusting these institutions so much less than in previous generations. So the next question for me, the curiosity is, where are they placing their trust then? If it's not in church or the government or in any of these other institutions, where are the youth placing their trust? What does the data have to say about that? And what does the data tell us about the challenges and the opportunities that the church faces in terms of reaching the next generation? Because trust is a foundational part of sharing the gospel. If we want people to hear the gospel and receive the gospel, there has to be a foundation of trust. So what does the data say? What are the challenges and opportunities before us? It's so interesting to ask, if youth aren't trusting religions, governments, or media, who and what do they trust? Amazing question. So if you look at another large global survey of youth, the institutions that they trust actually are academic schools and colleges, international nonprofits, humanitarian organizations, and interestingly, businesses and business employers, particularly their employers. So this presents an interesting situation for reaching the next generation. First, we must look towards gaining the trust back within traditional structures. We can't give that up, right? But we also have to realize and maybe now have more energy in mobilizing God's fullness of his church in a strategic way to reach the youth via business and education and social oriented organizations. And although we can maybe lament that the traditional structures are being trusted less, but maybe on the flip side, we can also rejoice that this is now a wonderful time for all Christians 
particularly in secular organizations, to become mobilized for the gospel. Oh, that's such a rich answer, Matt. I truly appreciate that. And I think that we really do need to begin to mobilize our workplace leaders. We need to mobilize those within our churches that are working for nonprofit organizations to begin to raise their voices and to begin to shine the light just a little bit to draw the next generation in. I'd be curious, what other kinds of questions should the global and evangelical church be asking when it comes to this whole idea of trust? The lack of trust is a difficult trend to reverse the flywheel on. Anybody that has experienced a breaking of trust, it takes a long time. But the global and evangelical church, we have to seek to restore this trust. And maybe we can do this through partnering with other trusted institutions to really work together for the common good. So really a main question we have here is we need to be asking, how can we as a church participate in the common good more? I'm also aware that Trust building takes time, as we mentioned. So to reference James Davison Hunter's great book, one of my favorites, To Change the World, the church needs to find what he calls a position of faithful presence in the community. This is presence through thick and thin for the long haul, just building that trust no matter what's happening around, serving the community. I think that's a great idea that we can look to. And maybe lastly, I think there's room for the church to ask, how can they work broadly to restore and reconcile people? within their settings. By living out this calling to be agents of reconciliation, we can show God's love and plan for the world through our actions. Important questions, it's gonna take time. Such important questions, so much for us to reflect on and to think on as leaders and as churches and as organizations. Are there any other thoughts as we bring this section of the podcast interview to a close? Any other thoughts or reflections that you'd like us to hear or what you'd like to share with us when it connects, connecting to the concept of trust. You know, in our Say the Great Commission report, our team conducted a survey of 1,500 evangelical leaders, and we were exploring the perception of the church's influence on broader culture. It was interesting. Overall, these leaders felt that the church's influence really was minimal on culture. At most, 50% of the leaders in some regions like Africa felt like the church had an influence on culture. But this number was as small as 10% of leaders perceiving influence in regions like Oceania. So during this process, and partially in response to the survey, I've had several leaders ask about why is our influence on culture decreasing? And just, I think that trust is a large part of this answer. So in that sense, it may be wise to move our attention away from cultural influence overall and focusing on that and begin to focusing on restoring trust as a first step. Because we know that trust is required for cultural influence. I'll leave us with that thought. Well, with that last thought, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, sharing a bit of the data from the State of the Great Commission reports. Until next time. Thank you, Jason. Next up, we have Dr. David Benson, who is Director of Culture and Discipleship at the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. David discusses the findings from the State of the Great Commission report, reflects on global shifts in trust, and helps us as a church reflect and what it might take for the church to become a beacon of trustworthiness in today's world. Let's dive into my interview with Dr. David Benson. Dr. David Benson, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Jason. Good to be with you. So today we're exploring the State of the Great Commission report's findings on global shifts in trust. And I think what makes this topic so interesting for me is there is something very personal when we're speaking about the topic of trust. In many ways, trust is a part of what it means to be human. It's a shared experience that we all have. And all of us know what it's like to trust someone else and to be trusted by others. 
but we've also had the experience of people and organizations and networks breaking trust with us and have experienced the ramifications of that breaking of trust into our lives. And so as we kick off today's podcast, I want to begin on a bit of a personal note with you and ask you to share a moment in your life where trust was something that became highlighted that has influenced the way that you perceive trust and interact with others. It is such a personal question. So I I was wrestling with this, whether to talk about a big story, but I want to go to the most granular level. When I was a teenager, I grew up in Australia, as you can probably pick from my uh, from my accent. And one of my great loves is the outdoors. I love hiking, climbing. And I got to know a guy from our church who was a mentor to me, Alan Alexander, Mr. A, as we used to call him. And he would take us on adventures, climbing, hiking, all kinds of things. And the very first time he invited me to go one-on-one, we climbed up a mountain, Mount Barney, up Logan's Ridge. I'd never done it. I just heard others say, it's tough. It's really tough. And I thought, I'll be fine. He's 30 years my senior. I'll keep up. Anyway, we got to this, this section where it looked really steep. And I was starting to get a bit nervous. And I said to Mr. A, hey, you sure that's the way we should go? The guy who actually has climbed this mountain something like 80 times. I'm like, are you sure that's the way we should go? There's, there's a few footprints heading over this direction. You can see the rock worn into. And he very calmly said, I think this is best, but if you want to try that way, feel free. And so he then let me head over. I then headed over. I could see him about 50 meters away. And we both gradually went up the mountain together until I realized I was at an absolute precipice with no chance of getting past an overhead. And I kind of called out to him, Mr. A, Mr. A, what do I do? And basically he graciously said, you're going to need to go back where you came from traverse across to where I am and then get to where I am. And when I got to where he was, he'd set up some ropes and basically I had the opportunity or the challenge of, do I trust this man? Do I know this man? And he then helped me with the ropes to get up and it helped me realize some of the dimensions of trust. Firstly, that there was a goal that we were going for that we agreed upon, which was the top of the mountain. We needed clarity on where we're headed. But the second thing is it wasn't simply enough for me to go, does he know the mountain? Yes, he does know the mountain. He's wise in his head. But also, I trust his character. I trust his virtue. I trust that he is in relationship with me and loves and doesn't want me to fall. And I also trust his competence, that he knows the ropes and knows how to do this. And therefore, I can lean on the rope and I can hide him security of knowing who this person is and that he wills for the good and wants us to make it to the top together. And for me, that's become a paradigm for trust. We're leaning on what we think we know to get where we can only go if we trust. So we lean on what we think we know to get where we need to go. So there's a pragmatic to it. We need to trust each other, but not all trust is warranted, but it was warranted for me to trust this mentor in the faith. I truly am challenged by his willingness to let you fail and not not, yeah. not be you know sidetracked by your arrogance as a young teenager. Hey, hey watch it. Call me arrogant straight up. That's, that's brutal. I'm curious to hear, you mentioned that you grew up in Australia, you're now living and working in the UK. I'd be interested to hear what the dynamics of trust are like compared to those two nations. It's known that Australia has the tall poppy syndrome, which has its own impact on societal trust. For our global audience, could you just elaborate on that just a little bit and discuss how that has shaped your own personal experience and engagement with trust? It's an interesting dynamic. I know that Matthew Newman's already talked about some of the data and and actually on the shifts in trust report, Australia comes up quite high on trust, but there is a complex narrative behind this. So the tall poppy syndrome, other countries have their own version. Uh, I know in Japan, the, the tall nail is hammered in. Ours is maybe not quite so direct, but 
it means if, if a flower, if a poppy grows taller than the others, you tend to cut it down, cut it back to size. I think some of that comes, it's maybe a stereotype, but there's a lot to it. Australia's mentality, as opposed to say America's mentality, which was frontier, expand, courage, go out. Australia's mentality was often people who were either convicts sent over for something that maybe they felt they you know, did the wrong thing, or maybe it wasn't that major, but they were sent anyway. And so there was very much a fear of, or a suspicion of the man, the person in power, the person in control. And as a result, we are pretty suspicious as a people. It's mostly to do with power dynamics. If anyone uses a title or comes across with a certain way of speaking or an accent in a way that is suggesting that they're superior to someone else or that they wield power over them, you'll very quickly find Australians undercutting. Usually through humor, the greatest words of truth are often told in jest. So we'll often use humor to bring people back down to size because we do have a deeply embedded egalitarian understanding that all people are equal, no matter what your station, your status, your class, your income. And that's got strengths to it. Like I know that someone moved across to Australia because they wanted to be a landscape architect and they felt in the UK context that they wouldn't have been respected doing that job. They genuinely reported back that in Australia, they were seen as just as good as anyone else. And actually they were just celebrated for giving it a go. That's the positive side, give it a go. But the converse is we do tend to cut people down. So we've seen just a cavalcade of leaders going through prime ministers, for instance. We don't tend to give the respect that's due to leaders because we're nervous about the way they'll use that power over us. But at the same time, it is a little bit different to the UK. Because we are less classed as a society, there's less disparity wealth-wise between the different groups. And that is one of the factors comes up in the report that the more disparity and the more class divisions and the more boundaried are your communities, the less you tend to trust others. So the egalitarian ideal means that Australians are probably quick to trust other people on an even level, but when it comes to those above us in power, we're very suspicious of how they're going to use that power and we largely want to be left alone to do our own thing. So it's a bit autonomous as, a, as an approach. And how have you experienced the shift moving to London? I mean, it's a metropolis, people from all over the world. I'd be interested to hear how your experience from Australia to London has shifted in the way that yeah. you interact with people and as you build trust and relationship. Australia is similarly diverse, particularly in the major centers. So, um, so there's no lack of diversity. Very few people other than the indigenous people were born or go generations back in Australia. I mean, my own heritage is from the UK, but there certainly are some differences. And I need to say too that London versus, say, Manchester or up in the northeast of England, there really is a north-south divide in England. So the attitude that Australians have to power is pretty much the attitude that Mancurians from up in Manchester have towards the London power base as well. So there's a suspicion of centres of power. I think there's a lot of energy and excitement to try things in London. Um, but at the same time, I do still find, particularly I'm working near Marlebone, which is one of the, the kind of business areas, it is quite upper class in the style. And many of the people I work with, wonderful people, but often Oxford, um, Cambridge, so Oxbridge educated. And often you'll find you have to read between the lines. There's so many social codes in, in the UK and the lines are very far apart. So what someone says and what they actually mean, what they mean is usually between the lines. And there's a lot of subtlety or irony. So you need to pick that up. And that makes it hard for me as an Australian because Australians are fairly brutal with our language. We tend to be very direct, but usually with a smile. So we don't tend to force so much, but we do tend to say what we think. So when I'm in a cultural context now where people don't necessarily say what they think, 
and the policy that's written may not be quite the way it plays out. It often is, does this person know that person? Is there the network of trust? Did we go to university together? Did we used to work on a board together? And it's not necessarily nepotism or corruption in any sense, but the relationships of trust, if you know someone and you're close to them, that goes a long way. Networks go a long way further than they do in Australia. I think there is more of a meritocracy. If you've got the credentials, you've got the runs on the board, you get the opportunity. Here, it is a lot about who you know and does that lead to a next opportunity. So, so I think because there's so many people in London, there's a degree of anonymity. You're anonymous to a degree. And we quickly judge who's trustworthy based upon who knows who and how they work together. And that's our thin slice or quick way of sizing up whether this person is like trust pilot. Do they rate high on trust pilot? I can't know everyone. Um, whereas in the Australian context, people know each other a bit better, larger population, uh, smaller population, sorry. So as a result, I think we're maybe a little bit more willing to extend trust on that interpersonal level. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for unpacking the different ways that the cultures interact with trust. And even as you were speaking, I was thinking about my own culture in South Africa and how we tend to relate to each other. And I'm trusting that those who are listening are doing a bit of a reflective exercise in their own space where they find themselves, mm -hmm. how they interact with each other. And so I'm trusting that you have set them up well just to reflect on that. But I would like us to shift and begin our discussion on focusing on the State of the Great Commission reports, shifts in trust. I'd be interested to hear from you what resonated with you in your own life and ministry and what surprised you as you read the results of the State of the Great Commission report. I think some things I was struck by, which are not surprising to me, but it's interesting to see it's not just in the UK or Australia, it's global, that there is a growing distrust that there is a growing polarization, that people are pulling apart. And I know you've done some interviews on the, on the digital age. A key part of that is that we have been siphoned off into echo chambers based upon algorithms that discern what we like or dislike, who we associate with. So if you're thinking in terms of many sociologists like Robert Putnam, they speak about bonding and bridging. Bonding is going deep with people that you're like. Bridging is crossing over to connect with those that you're not like. And um, what we're finding is that the bonding is becoming stronger in the digital age. I'm finding people that are kind of red filter or blue filter, depending on left or right, or I'm finding more and smaller echo chambers that I locate myself within because I'm surrounded by just too much information, too many options. So my way of getting control is to find a tighter group that I feel identity with or connection with. So the bonding is going deeper, but it's not bridging well across divides. And I think there's benefit or it's saleable from a media perspective to, and a commercial perspective to make ever finer distinctions between groups. I think Freud called it the narcissism of small differences. In other words, you know, well, I'm reformed, you're reformed, but am I premillennial or am I, you know, like we find ever smaller differences and distinguish ourselves from them and birds of a feather flock together, but we become suspicious of those outside of our community. So there's some of the major things. Another thing that was really intriguing to me was even as global distrust is growing, some of the highest trust levels were in countries that we would usually call authoritarian or totalitarian. And at first glance, you look at that and go, how is that possible? Why are they so trusting when they're under perhaps even a dictator? But then you start to think maybe that is a larger version of an echo chamber as well. There was a lot of unity, for instance, and trust in the building of the Tower of Babel. There was one language, there was one narrative, there was one story coming from above and everyone aligned with that. And there was actually suspicion or fear of those outside of that, which is why we needed to build this stronghold. 
And so that was very unifying and mobilizing. So I think it does give us a pause to say trust is not good in and of itself. Trust should be given to those who are trustworthy and things that you can lean on or find refuge in. Reminds me of Jeremiah 17, where God said, cursed is the person who trusts in man, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. So to the degree the people and the institutions we're trusting in are Christ-like and are aligned with the character of God, they deserve trust and we all benefit when we trust in them. But when we place our trust in fallen institutions, fallen structures, fallen national narratives, that doesn't turn out well for people. So my hope is not to increase trust in general. My hope is to foster trustworthy institutions and Christ-like people. And I think to the degree the church aims at that, rather than just hoping for trust so that we can get the gospel message out there and people to believe us, then I think we're aiming at the right thing. So there's some of the key things, but I'm sure there's other areas we can press into. Feel free to bring up some of your own, but immediately there's some of the things that stood out to me as insights. I think what you've already spoken into, that those two things connect with each other. I mean, you've spoken about this idea of these echo chambers that have been formed in the digital space and how we, we tend, what, the more we get into those echo chambers, the more we tend to trust what we are hearing in that space. And we're hearing the same story again and again and again, and yeah. we mistrusting anything else that's coming out of that space. And I think the similar experience is happening in some of these countries. They're, hearing, they're, they're in their own echo chamber. I thought that it was so interesting how you spoke about how we as a church need to foster trustworthy, become a trustworthy institution. Could you speak into that just a little bit? Could you speak into the effects maybe of social media echo chambers on gospel outreach and Christian formation? Because I think it has a big impact on how we are being formed. And what would it look like for us as a church or as Christian believers to be actually become the kind of people who are trustworthy? Yeah, that, that's massive. So this, this may unfold into a few different comments and questions. I might step back with a piece of cultural analysis that I think is helpful and then dive into how that relates to the church, because the report did say that religious institutions were some of the least trusted globally, even as there's a growing trust in businesses, for instance, to be more ethical. There's often a distrust in the churches, and this is often reported by Christian leaders themselves to say, we're not having a great influence on society. It's pretty minor, maybe in education, but you know that's the limit of it. So um, there was a report by Harvard Business Review, and they took 360-degree reviews, right, where you're, um, you're an employee and you get those above the equal level beneath to write a report. Well, they had 86,000 of these 360-degree reviews as a data pool, which is pretty major. They're very involved. And what they did is they analyzed it to say what makes for trust. And they really come up with three factors, and I think this is helpful because it aligns with that story at the beginning with Mr. A. What they said is you need three things. One is you need relational. So if you think of the heart, head, heart, heads, you need relational congruence or personal relationships. If the person knows that you love them and care for them and you're not using them for your own project, but you're actually looking for their flourishing, that is the number one issue. That's the number one criteria for trust, that you are invested in them and you're working for their flourishing, not for your own aggrandizement. The second thing is to do with the head which is you need wise judgment. You need to discern what's going on and make the right calls that in an uncertain environment, people are confident that you can read the land and that you know what makes for flourishing. So, so you've got to have certain cognitive capacities. And this is, I guess, if you say faith involves content or belief knowledge, it involves trust and it involves action. This is the knowledge part of it. You need to know what's going on. 
But the third part is to do with your hands, which is consistency. You need to stay true to what you said. You need to deliver consistently, not be up and down one day. You've got to actually stay the line and deliver what you're talking about. And when I think of those three aspects, I tell a very brief story here that maybe captures the kind of distrust in the church. When I was doing my doctoral studies, I was looking at the place of religion in secular education. And education was one of the few areas where Christians felt that they're actually making an impact on society. But what kind of impact are we making? I was presenting at my first year confirmation in a secular university with almost all non-Christian professors, presenting my proposal that evangelicals might actually have some wisdom as to how to engage in education and that there is a place not just for the Bible, but for diverse religious texts to help us in education. I got into that presentation. I presented, I thought it was good. I gave a 50-page report. Clearly no one had read it. But it was just a storm that came as soon as I'd finished this presentation. You know, people saying, why do you think evangelicals are going to ride in on their white horse and fix everything up? And then when someone's saying, haven't you done enough damage to the indigenous people already? Why are you trying to prioritize the Bible? And I said, actually, I said, there's a case for a range of sacred texts. They're like, Let's be honest, you just want to get the Bible into education. You don't care about anyone else's text. The high point or the low point was when the chair of the committee, I won't use the expletive, it was, it was almost academic abuse, but literally said, why should I give up what evangelicals think about education? I was stopped in my tracks. I mean, it was confronting. I debriefed with my uh, supervisor afterwards. And what we realized is if you think of those three levels of trust, is they hadn't read the report and assumed that I was just coming from an evangelical perspective and wasn't drawing on the best of scholarship and that I was just narrow within my own category. They had no confidence in my wisdom. They certainly didn't have a confidence in my heart because they thought I was just interested in using education for gospel ends that would serve evangelicals. They didn't think I was working for the common good or for the shalom of the society, for flourishing with God, neighbor, nature, self. And they also weren't confident that I had the consistency or the competence to deliver this in a conflicted space. Now, I'm not putting this down to my own competency or otherwise, but I'm pleased to say at the end of four years, I had the same guy who basically ripped it apart and he passed my review and he said, I still don't see things the same way as you, but you have made a solid case educationally that this actually works for flourishing. I can see you've made principles of reciprocity that give everyone a voice at the table because you actually care about who they are and what they think. And you're working to serve education rather than just to serve the church. And I can also see you've made a concrete proposal that gives us steps forward. So I trust you to move forward in that. I won't block you because I think you might contribute to the good of this space within the public square, as opposed to balkanize it and damage it. And I think that highlights for me, again, what it means to be a church in a pluralistic society. We need to be wise, take the best of biblical knowledge, but integrate it with other fields. We need to have the virtue, the character of Christ to love our neighbors, not just to use them towards the end of finishing the Great Commission or getting the task done. We need to be about the flourishing of everyone as a sign of what it will be when Christ returns and sets the world right. That's why we make disciples, to be agents of peace and reconciliation and shalom in society. And we need to be people who are competent, excellent at what we do. And if the church was known for that and was consistent, not looking for quick gains, but actually serving the flourishing of all, then I think we would see a rise in trust and that we would also feel more confident in the gospel and in our narrative because we're not seeking for just us, we're seeking justice. We're working for the flourishing of all in this time. And I think that's really important to remember. Disciple making serves the kingdom of God. 
we're a sign in the present of what one day will be. We're not bringing heaven to earth. We're not trying to coerce people to follow what we think is right. We're trying to love them as Christ loved them. We must be servant leaders. Wow, that was rich, Dave. Thank you for unpacking that for us. And I think it's so beautiful that in that whole process, you were able to help reframe this supervisor's perspective on you know, even your intentions, but the way that the gospel or the scriptures can speak into everyday life, which in many ways I think is an encouragement to all of us who are listening because we all come and serve in different spheres of society and God can use us in those spaces to bring transformation. So thank you for that encouragement. You mentioned earlier that I must mention something that has stood out to me in the reports. The one thing that was really curious for me was the rise in people's trust in self over their trust in institutions and in governments. There was across the board in every generation, there was a trust in self. Now, how do we begin to reconcile this with the biblical view of human nature and sin and our dependency on God? I mean, you see, if I just do a brief run through a couple of bits of the Bible, we might do a a larger narrative in line with what Chris Wright talked about in an earlier episode of a a narrative theology. But you see at the beginning of the story in the Bible that there is this vision of shalom. I trust God. I connect with and trust my neighbor. I work for the flourishing of the world. And I'm part of that and everything flourishes together. But you see when it shifts to the fall is that essentially Satan lies, deceives, Eve trusts that because it appeals to a desire in her own heart to have security and beauty and provision, kind of the lust of the eyes, the flesh, you know, this kind of language. And then she tells Adam, who actually had heard directly from God, the only one who'd heard directly from God, and Adam trusts his wife who trusted the deceiving snake, and the whole thing falls apart. And the very heart of their calling of work and of cultivation and having family all fragments. And this comes to a high point in the rebellion at Babel that essentially they're building a name for themselves rather than actually, as Abraham does, receiving a name from God that leads to flourishing and blessing, which is what they always wanted. But they were afraid and wanted security, so they settled in a place with no provision because they're outside of God's grace. And so I think we see this narrative over and over and over again. Cursed is the one who trusts in themselves. I mean, are we against self-confidence? Well, not necessarily, but confidence, confide, literally means faith alongside. We are to have faith alongside or faith in Christ and faith in Christ's own faith. When we trust in who Christ is and who God is and what God is about, then we discover a confidence because we're rightly located with God, neighbor, nature, and self. We're part of the system, part of the flourishing. But when we just look at ourselves and we ignore God, we abuse or use our neighbors, we vandalize and pillage the earth, then having confidence in yourself is the dumbest thing you could possibly do. I think G.K. Chesterton said that well in one of his books, I think it might've been Orthodoxy, where someone was saying to him, you've just got to believe in yourself. And he said, right at that time, a bus came past with an advertisement. Uh, We wouldn't use this language now, but at the time was an insane asylum, people who are dealing with massive mental health issues. And he says to his friend, You want to know where the people are who most believe in themselves? They're in Hanwell. The people who have a flaming star of certainty in themselves with no question of the belief is often those who are disconnected from the way the world is. I would say that a right estimation of oneself to the degree that we have wisdom, to the degree that we have character 
and love our neighbor and to the degree we're competent and consistent, then there may be a right trust. We're trusting each other to have this interview today. You're trusting that I might have something to say. I'm trusting that you'll ask great questions. There's a right trust and a confidence that comes with that. But if it's detached from God, from neighbor and nature, then I would say it is deformative and dangerous. It's not surprising that the more people look at themselves, the more they doubt their neighbor. And that is at the center of the story. Um, I know that Luther, drawing back from Augustine and others, defines sin as homo covatus in seis. In the Latin, it basically means humanity curved in upon oneself. We're the selfie age. You know, this story may come back to bite me, but I did go with a niece at one stage to the Louvre and she wanted to go and look at the Mona Lisa. And up to that point, she was in her late teens. Up to that point, she wasn't really interested in seeing much or doing much to do with culture. We got to the Louvre and we went all the way across to the painting and I thought, great, she's now interested in art. But at about 30 paces from the piece, she turned around and took a selfie, pulling the kind of duck face, whatever it is, to basically say, this doesn't impress me much. Her head was this big. The Mona Lisa was this big in the background. She never even went to look at it. And then she said, I'm done. And we left the Louvre. Thankfully, she's grown up quite a bit since that point. But at the time, I thought, isn't that just characteristic of our whole age, that we're more interested in self and everything else looks small in comparison? But when we focus upon God and his goodness and the purposes of flourishing for the world, everything is put back in perspective and we become part of the picture, but not the focus of the picture. Dave, you've already touched on the role that the church can play in building trust, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper in there and see if we can pull anything out. What role do you see for the church in reimagining this trust building as part of the redemption story and part of our call by God to be bearers of shalom in the world? Well, I'll maybe do the biblical narrative and then drop into how do we do that. So we see at the start, there is trust in God, neighbor, nature, self. It's damaged in the fall. Everything's damaged by evil as we turn inwards and make it all about us. And so God chooses Abraham and through Abraham to bless the world, where he basically says, if you follow these, if you're informed by these frameworks, understanding who God is, the nature of God, understanding, for instance, the Ten Commandments, it gives you a shape for life within which you can trust, that you're not afraid of losing your wife, your neighbor, your job, your that it preserves the boundaries within which life works. It becomes a community of practice that aligns with the grain of the universe. You think if you're doing carpentry and you're sanding, you need to know what the grain is that you're cutting along. There is a grain to the world that God's made. When you live with that grain, you'll flourish. When you go against the grain, you'll get splinters. And so Israel is formed as this community to be a light to the nations of the way that we work best when we're under God's rule. And that is individual, it's communal, it's creational. This is wisdom. This is what shalom looks like. But even Israel then loses the plot <laughs> and it turns inwards on itself. We see everyone did what was right in their own eyes in Judges. They were exiled. The prophecies came. You've trusted in yourself rather than God. And, and they waited, as it said in Psalm 78, they waited for a leader in the line of David who shepherded them. In other words, the heart, the relationship, shepherded them with integrity of heart, with wisdom, and with skillful hands. And so that's where we look to Christ, who embodies what it means to love God, to love neighbor, to work with your gifts, to cultivate nature, and to announce the kingdom of God. And when we recognize, actually, everything's we've lost trust and everything's fallen apart, the blood of the world and the distrust is on my hands. And when I confess that, 
he then reforms me and grafts me into a community filled with the spirit. So it's not just an external law. Now my heart changes to want to become wise, to want to love, to want to serve with integrity. We grow up together as we hold each other accountable to become this community of, I would use the language of a wise peacemaker, a person who sees what makes for flourishing, they have the character to seek shalom, and they have the skill to make peace in their particular place, whether that's in an institution, in their neighborhood, in their work, where they volunteer, where they study, all of these places. And finally, this community becomes a sign of the end when the greatest of these things is love that remains. Faith and hope are there, but love is what remains as we all enter into trust where God sets everything right. So if I take that story, the church right now is to be this covenant community that so practice forming accountability and Christ-like character that in the way we give and receive love, it overflows through the spirit in blessing to our neighborhoods, blessing to our work, blessing to the government, blessing to education, blessing to medicine, blessing to creation care, that we're formed as a certain kind of people. But that takes accountability. It takes discipline to learn to follow the way of Jesus in your place at this time. It takes growth in wisdom. It takes growth in character. And it takes growth in skill. And that's a key part I know that I've been working out with many others at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, trying to form these disciples through not the bigger and better, but the slow, steady mechanism of giving and receiving love in a community of practice where we act, we reflect, we integrate, and we search for people of peace in the wider community so that we will flourish together. And therefore, when we live that way, the kingdom of heaven comes near. People sense the kingdom of heaven come near. They sense shalom. And people of peace will warm to that. And one of our problems in evangelism today is that we're more interested in naming the name of Jesus than inhabiting and embodying the nature of his reign. We're more interested in words about Jesus than in the way of Jesus. But once you live the way of Jesus and people encounter that, when the kingdom of heaven comes near, they want to know the name. But they don't want to know the name if they haven't felt the kingdom of heaven come near. And so I think if we are communities that are practicing the way of Jesus in our time and place, more and more people will want to know the name of Jesus and what is this different reality that they're experiencing. And that then builds trust. And we saw that in the early church. We saw that they didn't have that much power and they were, people were suspicious of them, didn't trust them. They thought that they were brothers and sisters having a love feast. They thought they were literally sacrificing people and involved in incest. And they were graffitied to say, you know, this is Alexa Menos worshipping his God with the head of a donkey and, you know, as though that's Christ. And I mean, they were mocked, they were killed. And yet because of the exquisite way that they loved and laid down their power to leverage it for the benefit of their neighbors, um, caring for the least of these, particularly the widows and the abandoned children left exposed, they earned the trust of people and the most vulnerable came to them because they looked like the Christ that they named. Their way was a better way in the world. It was a better option. And that then set the basis for trust in the society as a whole. So I think let's aim to be Christ-like and love exquisitely and let a lot of these larger goals sure be strategic. Uh, let's not let our goal to finish tasks, complete things, achieve numbers, scalability. Let's not that let that become the kind of cart before the horse. Let's serve Christ trust the spirit, be a faithful sign in the present of what one day will be, 
And God will take care of it because he builds his kingdom. He brings it. It's not built by human hands, but we're invited to participate with integrity. Oh, Dave, you've painted such a beautiful picture and a vision of what the gospel community could look like and in many ways should look like. And as you know, I think those who are listening to this have a heart for what you're speaking about, a, a community of love that demonstrates Christ. But it's one thing to have a vision for something and it's a whole nother thing to inhabit yeah. that in our lived experience. I would love to hear from you. How could we begin to inhabit those kind of practices in our lives that might build trust with communities, that people might see Christ through us, that we begin to live in the way of Jesus? I think the first thing, if I can think through that structure of head, heart, hands, we need to constantly beat the drum of a better vision. You know, when I was climbing with Mr. A, we agreed what the top of the mountain was and we wanted to get there. Our picture at the top of the mountain is not a church that is dominant or tribal in society. Our vision is not even every person coming to know Christ. I would actually argue our vision is a faithful witness that looks like Shalom, that invites all people to follow Christ. I think that's a different goal than seeing everyone come into the church, for instance. So, I mean, I'd be delighted if more people come to the church. But my main aim is that we would look like Christ and we would live for his kingdom. So I think we need that narrative, the wisdom of what we're aiming at very clearly there. And then I think what we need is spiritual disciplines and practices that orient us towards love. I'll just give you one example. A friend of mine who's a nurse, he said it's very easy for him in his day-to-day work, particularly during the COVID period, to remember Christ. He turns up to work, then it gets frenetic, and then he goes home at the end and he's like, where was Jesus in this? And we came up with an everyday action that he does. He washes his hands and puts moisturizer on 30 times a day. That's part of the medical regime as a nurse. And I said, well, what if you were to take that activity and enrich that, strap that to something that reminds you of the presence of Christ in your call to love your neighbors? And so basically what he would do is every time he'd wash his hands, he'd sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 30 seconds, he's reminding himself of his own sin that he needs to wash away so that he'll be cleansed. And then as he puts the moisturizer on, he says, Holy Spirit, would you coat me so that the people I touch next, that I would show them your love, would I be a conduit of your healing rather than a curse in this place? And so 30 times every day, my friend is now realigned in his mission to become like Christ. He's learning how to lay down his power. There's multiple routines and actions and places in our everyday lives that that we can encourage each other to practice hospitality, care humility, integrity, simplicity, friendship, living the scriptures in our place. So we need that. And I think there's got to be skill also of saying, in my context, let's just take three things. What's one thing I can water? Where do I see shalom? Where do I see the kingdom of God? Where do I see trust? How could I add a bit more energy to that? How could I water that? How could I weed out some things that are decreasing trust? Maybe I am a bit selfish. Maybe I am too driven by the task and the goal Maybe I've steamrolled some people and I need to say sorry for that. What do I need to weed out? And what could I weave that's something new and fresh in this space that is a sign of trust in the kingdom? How could I maybe even extend trust to someone that hasn't been given an opportunity with accountability so that we might weave those bonds of relationship together? How do I do that? And how do I connect our church to the community? Our local church, for instance, in a month's time, is we're doing a series on the common good. And we're actually looking at what can each of our community groups do to better connect with the neighborhoods. We meet in a school hall, but this thus far, we've done nothing to connect with the school other than we meet in the school hall and we try and leave it neat afterwards. 
but we're getting a list of the teachers and we've got permission to basically give them Christmas gifts and to pray for them and to do a pre-walk around that area, not for the sake of getting them to come to us, but us being sent to them to be a sign of the kingdom and to be a blessing. I think there's all these little one degree shifts we can do in our everyday places that look more like Christ and his kingdom and that will rebuild the web of trust that has so fallen apart in our wider society. This conversation has been so rich and but we're coming to the end of our time together. But there's one question I want to ask before we begin to wrap up that I feel is, is important for us to discuss in terms of the gospel and the message of Jesus and our own lived reality. There will be people who are listening to this who have experienced brokenness through the sin of others and through their own experiences in their lives and the communities. What would you say to someone who's struggling to come through from that and move forward from broken relationships, who are struggling to trust again, struggling to trust others, struggling to trust themselves in some circumstances, and even in some ways struggling to trust God and his goodness and light of his sovereignty. What would you say? How does the gospel intersect in that reality? I think the first thing is is an old quote from Brendan Manning, which was picked up by DC Talk. Now I'm showing my age on one of their albums, but it, it said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but deny him by their lifestyle. And that is what an unbelieving world finds so unbelievable. It's very easy to find multiple examples of Christians falling short of their Christ, who use words to point to the kingdom, but their way of life is not consonant with the Christ that they name. The messengers should embody as a medium the gospel that they pronounce. We should be humble, trusting, caring people, and we need communities to form this. So my first point would be to say, sorry, like genuinely, I'm so sorry. I got a dear friend of mine that I catch up with probably every eight weeks who grew up in a very fundamentalist family, experienced religious abuse. And this is now 20 years on. We still catch up about every eight weeks. He's not connected with the church and we share how we're going. I've got to know his two kids and he may never connect with a religious community because of what he went through. What I do know is that that our friendship is real to him. It's real to me. The way that we care for each other, the way I listen to and learn from him and not just come to preach at and, and use. I know that when we formed a house church called Christ Pieces, that we built it around story and sharing and hospitality. And he was very involved in that because he didn't feel it was coming to be talked at. He was respected and valued and his voice mattered in that conversation. And he was able to contribute with food and with stories and with insights. So we started to reform the web of trust by being a humble community that valued the muted voices, the marginalized, and that said, you matter to God, therefore you matter to us. And so I think it's a slow process. It's not about winning that person. It's about loving them as Jesus would and respecting their agency that perhaps he won't trust. I don't know, but we are embodying the gospel and announcing the reign of Jesus and also announcing that You're not saved because I'm good. If you are saved, you'll be saved by Christ who alone is good. Christ alone is the leader who shepherds with integrity of heart and skillful hands. And so our hope is that we can start to move towards that now. And you even sense your critique of the church is actually borrowing from this story in one sense because Christ himself critiqued the Pharisees. Christ himself critiqued the wayward church. But one day Christ will return. He knows who he is and he will lead with justice. He will lead with integrity. 
He is trustworthy. Let's work out together how to find a way of being where we all flourish now because Christ is true, good, and beautiful in the midst of this. And I think my friend can see that, but it's going to take more time to learn to trust the church in the midst of that. Thanks, Dave. As we bring this conversation to a close, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, this is a depressing end because I can't actually think of anything. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've had such a rich conversation. So um, rich. I think maybe just keeping it simple. I think sometimes we get a bit full of ourselves and the more we talk global sometimes, the more we start to miss the the everyday simplicity of just loving your neighbor, knowing the people in the downstairs flat, you know, taking time with that shopkeeper, working well with a colleague and being thankful. It's often the simplest things. I think a church that looks like Christ is the greatest argument for the existence of God and the Lordship of Christ, much more so than a strategic program with 6 million donors. Let's, let's keep first things first and receive Christ's love and learn how to love each other well. And by that, God will be made known. And with that strong ending, where can people find you? Learn more about your work with LLCC. Maybe get hold of you on social media. Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook, um, Dave Benson. Uh, I'm sure there's 6 million of them. But anyway, I'm at LICC, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. So just visit licc.org.uk. And hopefully you can find me through that. You'll see some of the work we're doing with Be Wise and courses to help train people in wisdom to become these kind of wise peacemakers today. So I'm always happy to be dropped a line. Oh, thank you, Dave. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of this conversation. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for adding value to myself and to the listeners as we begin to work through this idea of trust and what it means to be a community of trust in this ever-changing world. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. And that concludes our conversation with Dr. David Benson. We dived into some deep waters surrounding trust, culture, and the church. If we truly desire to see the acceleration of global mission, then we need to work together toward building trust within our own churches, communities, cities, and countries. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to give our podcast a rating and review and share it with your friends on social media. If you do share it on social media, please tag the Lausanne Movement so that we can repost and engage with you on the socials. Next week, we'll be back with another interview with Dr. Matthew Nierman and a new guest, Dr. Carmen Imes from Biola University to discuss what it means to be human in a world with a shifting understanding of humanness. Until next week, cheers.